Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yesterday, the January 6th committee sprung a surprise hearing on us all, featuring a bombshell testimony from a former aide to President Trump's chief of staff. Cassidy Hutchinson was working for Mark Meadows on January 6th, 2021. She said Trump tried to join the rioters on January 6th at the Capitol, even when a Secret Service detail told him it wasn't safe to go. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. She also said Trump demanded security checkpoints be lifted at his rally, even though he knew the crowd was heavily armed. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing bags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. And she said that Trump and some members of his team had known about the potential for violence at the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th and done nothing. It was stunning testimony. But as usual, the question remains, was it enough to change anything? To debrief, I'm joined by a Times columnist and Times editorial board member, Brett Stevens and Michelle Cottle. Hi, Brett. Hi, Michelle. Good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about yesterday's hearing. Let's get into it. Michelle, what we heard yesterday, this was not a hearing that was on the original agenda, but obviously the committee realized that hearing from Hutchinson was important. What was new here and what does her testimony change? There's been a lot of discussion on whether it changes the legal aspects of this, but I think just in terms of like lurid details about Trump knowing the crowd was armed and still wanting this to go forward, I think it really drives home the point that he absolutely knew of the dangers and he just did not care. And a lot of her testimony in terms of like conversations she overheard with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, talking with other advisors who were begging Trump to step in and calm the fury, made really clear that he had no interest in that, that he thought it was fair that Mike Pence was being threatened with hanging. So I think just kind of her very personal, very kind of nitty gritty from the front lines of this testimony made it almost unavoidable to accept that, you know, Trump knew what was going on and was perfectly fine with what was happening. So I think that this may have been a moment that broke through, not to Trump's most faithful, but to his voters who were prepared to let a lot of things slide, including January 6th, precisely because what Hutchinson described was so vivid and so credible. It's worth remembering that this young woman was an intern for Ted Cruz She before she came to the White House. She comes very much from within the conservative movement. It's not a case like Judge Ludig, whose testimony I found persuasive, but who was a George H.W. Bush appointee, kind of traditional mainstream conservative. 
she's coming from the hard right and providing a firsthand testimony. And I also think everyone knows the line that Joseph Welch, the Boston lawyer, said about McCarthy uh, during the McCarthy hearings, you know, have you no sense of decency? But the line that precedes it was, he said, until this moment, Senator, I think I'd never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. And I think what happened with Cassidy Hutchinson is Americans got to see and gauge at first hand Donald Trump's cruelty and recklessness. And so I think it's really broken through. In some ways, it feels like this hearing up the ante for a lot of people. I, I think I'm hearing from more people who were a little wishy-washy on prosecuting Trump that they are now more on the side of doing so. In light of this testimony, Brett, should we indict Trump? Yes or no? Well, let me put it this way. I used to be against it. I thought it was imprudent, even if, uh, and this is my view as of the day before yesterday. I think this really changes things. What the former president did strikes me as seditious conspiracy. If, in fact, the allegation that he was trying to communicate with uh, Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and If they, in turn, were in touch with the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, that seems like a very solid basis for a case, along with the fact that he was eager to have armed people present in his rally. So I guess I've gone from being 80% against, 20% in favor, to, to flipping that ratio. Michelle, what do you think? Okay, Jane, so the thing that I actually found most intriguing yesterday, I mean, yes, Her testimony was amazing. I think it will help break through with a lot of people, uh, you know. But at the end of this, there was also the promise of coming testimony about witness tampering. And in the political rule that it's never the crime, it's always the cover-up. I am extremely interested to see what they've got. You know, they pulled up just a couple of examples of having talked with people who, you know, acknowledged that they had been contacted by Trump representatives and it was made clear to them that they were being watched. And in the language of gangsters, it's like, you know, we want you to know that we're watching to see if you're still on the team. He's paying close attention. He reads transcripts. So I'm thinking that if they've got any goods along those lines, that's going to be a another huge step forward. And in that case, I think then the odds of almost having to indict go way up. Yeah. And when you start to see tweets from people like Mick Mulvaney, who had been Trump's chief of staff, saying that things could go very dark for him after the Hutchinson testimony, that's really, I think, a bellwether. I mean, Mulvaney obviously feels very sore about the way he was treated by Trump. There are a lot of former Trumpers who have kind of put some distance between themselves and their former boss. I think that was probably the most significant tweet of the day, because I think he speaks for a lot of conservatives who are saying, okay, no more. And one of the things that will be interesting to watch is there's going to be a tipping point at some moment, Jane, with 2024 contenders. So somebody was talking about how they were in touch with the DeSantis folks. The Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is seen as the heir apparent to the MAGA cloak. And the word on the street was that there were some of those folks just licking their chops and giggling about the possibility that this could go very badly for Donald Trump. 
And DeSantis is not the only person who has an interest in this. You know, Tom Cotton has made clear he's running. Ted Cruz and that Weasley way of his has made clear that he is interested. There are an awful lot of Republicans who, if the January 6th stuff goes badly, they will not be all that sorry. And neither will the people who are lining up to back them. So it'll take a lot. But at some point, it could tip. It's been interesting because we keep asking, when will this tip? When will this tip over? And I think that's been the question for now years. Is there a red line for the GOP when it comes to his behavior? And with the it's ex- not, to be clear, it's not because they have reached their shame point. No. It's when it no. works to their advantage. This is all about their own ambitions. Right. And I think that this seems about as close as we've gotten to that, especially on that point. Yeah, there, there is no bottom to the shame. That's what we have learned, especially with folks like Cruz and DeSantis and Kevin McCarthy. They're willing to go as low as they think is useful. But once it's no longer seen as working in their advantage, that will be it. And that, and that is, of course, a moving line. We've yet to figure that out. Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Governor DeSantis, these guys don't want to say, folks, uh, we've been misled President Trump was exactly the threat to democracy that Nancy Pelosi was telling us all along that uh, he is, they're never going to say that. What it is is going to be a certain kind of feeling within the party that they can't win with Trump, that his time is over, that what happened with January 6th was a kind of a quiet turning point. And that's what I sort of expect is going to happen in the next few months, a kind of a quiet turning away more like a mood shift in the party that Trump will kind of begin to understand. His rallies won't be so so well attended. His social media posts won't get the kind of attention that he did. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday that said, you know, Mr. Trump, you're 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 better off being a kingmaker than than a king. I thought that was an effort to flatter Trump's vanity in a very personal way, and I suspect it's going to succeed. Yeah, somebody's going to have to provide him an off-ramp because he's never going to kind of have the self-awareness plus the willingness to leave the stage. I mean, there's a question of whether he'll ever acknowledge that his moment is over. Somebody's going to have to provide him a soft landing that really flatters his ego in just the way that that Brett's talking about. I think Trump aside, because as I said before, I think Trump believes that it's January 5th, 2021, and will continue to believe that for the rest of his life. So he's not going to get to a red line. But Brett, how does the Republican Party come out of this? Do you think after what we've heard, is there still a world in which they'd nominate Trump for president? I think there is. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I have so underestimated Trump for so long that I have to draw the lesson that moments to me that seem like tipping points. I mean, I thought his his slur against John McCain was a tipping point back in 2015. Shows you what I know about politics or at least about this this particular movement. Difference here is that Trump previously always communicated at some visceral level the message that he was a winner. That's not the case anymore. The committee made sure to point out Hutchinson's other connections on the Hill. As you mentioned, she interned for Ted Cruz and Steve Scalise. This is someone who's known to Republicans in Congress and trusted. Does her credibility move the needle for them and for other GOP members? Yeah, I think it's essential. I mean, look, she's 
quite young. She was an intern. She wasn't a staff member for Scalise and for Cruz, but she was at Meadows's right hand. She was never someone who walked away from Team Trump until now. She wasn't really well known by anyone until now. But I think they're going to have a very hard time attacking her credibility, unless she has said something that is easily uh, disproved. I mean, that's a possibility that has to be taken into account. But assuming that that's not the case, her testimony is going to stand. It's going to weigh very heavily on other Republicans. Now, it's funny to say this, but it wasn't just Trump who came off poorly. We saw that Roger Stone and Mike Flynn did as well. The committee played some truly weird deposition footage of Flynn pleading the fifth when asked if he thought the violence of the Capitol was justified. And Hutchinson testified that her boss, Mark Meadows, knew that the threat of violence existed a few days before the Capitol riots, but still did nothing. According to her, he said things might get real, real bad on January 6th. He's refused to cooperate with the committee. Do you think that there's a possibility of more indictments or the possibility of hearing testimony from them? I mean, at this point, it looks like they're so complicit or so deeply dug into what happened that it's hard to imagine that they would come forward unless somebody finds a leverage point. I mean, I've been dealing with Mark Meadows for a hundred years, it feels like, since, you know, since right around the time he he took over the Freedom Caucus back when he was threatening John Boehner as speaker, those sorts of things. Even now, I find it breathtaking how far he has fallen, that he has become so sucked into this cult that he would sit around as people are talking about that Mike Pence was in real physical danger on January 6th and just be like, eh, you know, the president thinks he deserves it. And I mean, that's kind of nuts. So I don't know that minus some kind of serious leverage point that the committee has that they're going to get him to step forward at this point. I would love to be wrong, but, you know, at some point they broke him and others like him. Hutchinson has called Meadows's veracity into question. So he has... If he continues to refuse to testify, he validates her testimony. Of course, if he does testify, he's doing so under oath and that runs the risk of perjury. So it'll be interesting to see what he chooses to do. And and these are people who sought pardons. They already knew that what they had done would not reflect well on them. They were nervous enough to really promptly asked for some pardons. So it's hard to imagine that under oath there's anything they could say that would make them look better or put them in less legal jeopardy unless somebody's cutting a serious deal with the Justice Department. Yeah, this whole thing is like a Shakespearean tragedy written about noxious morons. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast. It's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online. 
is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I want to talk a little bit about how the testimony changes the tenor of the hearings going forward. The committee is laying out a pretty solid case that Trump committed crimes. We talked a little bit about witness tampering. We've talked about some of the other ones. But, of course, they can't bring charges. And that's up to the Department of Justice. It's a choice to not bring charges. And I think it's a choice that is seeming harder and harder to justify, even with all the complications of what that might mean that we've talked about. At what point do you think, Michelle, does the decision to not bring charges begin to actively hurt the DOJ's credibility? Well, I think as far as like public opinion goes, if they do come up with the witness tampering charges and nothing happens or we, you know, they have already put together a very strong case, there's already been grumbling in certain circles that Merrick Garland is weak or should be doing more than he is. I do think that at this point, they're already running the risk of having their reputation damaged among people who already really wanted to see Trump go down. Now, as far as like Republicans go, it it would take a lot for them to be, you know, swayed enough to think that this is necessary. But I will go back to the witness tampering thing. This is something that resonates in political circles and is actually a kind of often an easier case to make than some of these other things. If they've got the goods on that and justice doesn't think that they need to indict, there will be questions that have to be answered. On the one hand, I think that there's an idea that like these hearings, how many people are actually paying attention to them? What do people actually want to hear? People want to talk about inflation. But on the other hand, If you have the former president of the United States committing crimes and you do not go after the person who committed the crimes, what does that say? So if you're in Democratic leadership, what do you think that the response should be from the Democratic Party? So if you're going into the midterms, there is just so much going on already. I mean, the Roe versus Wade stuff, the gun stuff, the inflation stuff, gas prices. I'm not sure that focusing on Trump, who's not on the ballot, and whoever enabled him in the Republican Party is actually a very good message going into the midterms. I mean, obviously, the report from the committee will not come out for a little while. Who knows what the situation will be? Who knows what the DOJ will do? But for now, going forward, during the heat of all this campaigning, you know, you've got the primaries are wrapping up over the summer and you're going to roll into the fall with all of these kitchen table issues plus the culture war issues that I do think are just going to dominate for Democrats going forward. And I I don't think that's necessarily the wrong approach based on what we kind of already know now from the hearings. And and I think going into 2024, that will be a bigger issue. I just think the timing on the midterms is tricky for this. Plus, as noted, there is so much crazy going on right now that his motivating voters on both sides. So, Brett, there was so much that happened yesterday that I think we've only scratched the surface in our time. Is there anything else that stood out to you that you want to mention? Hmm. 
You know, it's so funny. I had written an entirely different column. Yesterday is my column writing day. And and then I had filed my column and started watching the testimony. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. And I called up my editor and I said, I think I got to I think I got to write about this. What has been surprising and gratifying to me, just in the immediate response to my column, is how many conservatives I know who shall remain nameless and who have been chiding me for my anti-Trump stances over the years uh, sent me slightly sheepish notes of assent and, and agreement. Now, this is purely anecdotal. But people who I knew had been on Trump's side for a very long time and who were prepared to overlook January 6th in the event that Trump decided to run again seemed to be changing their minds. And and again, you know, sample size is small, but I, I took it as very encouraging. Okay. Well, Brett, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Brett Stevens is an opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle Cottle is a writer for The New York Times Editorial Board. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Fashaka Jarba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marsh Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. 